0: Hey everybody, it's Sherry Tutkus and Dale Buckman and welcome to Green Nurse radio show, Living Your Best Life. Today do we have a show for you. (laughs) Every week we have an incredible show. I can't help, I can't 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 help help ourselves. This is a very Uh, special show tonight. It is. Um, We like to talk about things that people don't like to talk about but we also like to talk about things that we want to celebrate. So we are going to be (laughs) celebrating Dale Buckman today at the last half of our show, part of the Green Nurse on the Go segment from this week was we were able to accompany Dale, their doctoral presentation um, called A Patient-Centered Approach to Depression Screening Using PHQ-9 in an Adult Medical Cannabis Clinic. being Green Nurse Group, our clinic, right? So it was amazing, so you presented did. That was a big part of the end of the, I mean, it's not the end, I still have some work to submit,
1: but it's, this is it, folks, this She's is at, the end. That's it.
0: And, and you're going to be submitting this to the IHI? Yeah. So people that don't know what that is, what is the IHI? Institute for Healthcare Improvement.
1: And they have a program that, you know, partners up with doctoral programs to create quality improvement that really works, and they put together a whole framework, and it's it's a very systematic approach, and it's really very effective, and it helps people to design, bring quality improvement into just Practice. about any,
0: any clinic. Yep. Right. So, um, at the end of the show, we have her presentation, and I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of Dale, I'm really, I'm so proud of you, really, she just, she just gave it 100%, and I, I'm telling you. Was I one of your biggest fans?
1: Oh my gosh, I, there was a lot of breakdowns, I must admit.
0: But you did great. So I just want to say, listen, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And I'm very, very grateful for all the hard work you've put in. And, um, and we're going to be celebrating Dale at the end of the show. Um, we're also going to be talking about, we have a wonderful guest on, David Cabral from the Deaf Cannabis. You know, he's a cannabis patient. He's a deaf man who's also an activist and an advocate for the deaf community. Um, language, as we know, is the mm-hmm. great connector to people. Um, we have expressive language, which is how we express ourselves to people. And then we have receptive language as to how we receive information and how we process that to make decisions in our lives. Mm-hmm. 5% of the world population has a disabling hearing loss and what that means is that they have a hearing loss of 40 uh, 40 decibels okay so what does that translate into one in 20 people in the united states are deaf one in three americans 65 years and over are hearing impaired 30 percent of the english language can only be lip read so that's 70 percent Of the English language that is going missing. And right now there is only one sign, one sign for smoking cannabis, and this is it. So there's no other signs except for hand spelling. So, you know. the endocannabinoid system, E-N-D-O-C-A-N-N-I-B-I, I mean, it's it's yeah. very long and cumbersome.
1: And, it's, and it goes beyond, and in speaking with David, there are many things that are barriers to patients that can't hear. And it's not just about um, having a sign for cannabis, but it's also speaking to the providers, going to a medical uh, provider,
0: to talk about getting certified as a medical patient. So, so, there's, this. Yeah, so there's a lot. So he's basically, he's gonna speak about the challenges mm. of the deaf patients, You know, the deaf patient population, not only medically, but even as adult use rolls out. People are new to this. Yeah. And if they're, and, and cannabis language in itself is new. I mean, endocannabinoid system, yeah. terpenes, terpenoids, you know, all the different ways of medicating and, and um, the terminology, and there isn't a sign for anything, it's only this. So we have a video that we're gonna put up really quickly before we actually um, speak with David. There is a woman, um, Dr. Regina Nelson. She has a nonprofit called the ECS Therapy Center in um, Boulder, Colorado. I tried to actually um, get in touch with her And i I wasn't able to hear back she's very busy but she's actually creating a video glossary around cannabis terminology Mm -hmm. for the deaf patients and um, we're going to put that video on right now and then as soon as we come back we have david and we're going to interview him and listen to what he has to say
2: the deaf community here in colorado has an unusual problem tonight with marijuana legal in our state how do you sign endocannabinoid Denver 7's Jacqueline Allen found that American Sign Language doesn't really have a pot vocabulary, so Boulder Nonprofit is hoping to create one.
3: In this Denver dispensary, are you? bud tenders are ready to help. Concentrate or edibles. But for some, ordering concentrate is more complicated. This one's going to be five milligrams. Larry Littleton is deaf and a certified interpreter, demonstrating the difficulties.
4: I believe that it's important for a patient to be empowered and when we don't have communication access.
3: Even with other deaf people, American Sign Language isn't up to weed. For example, endocannabinoid. Uh, Just spelling that is difficult. Cannabis oil or hemp oil, what's the difference? That's where a Boulder nonprofit is stepping in to bring new cannabis signs to deaf people. If this is the best sign for marijuana, Um, it's really not appropriate to cannabis and cannabis oil and these other things. Regina Nelson founded ECS Therapy Center and is bringing together interpreters and deaf professionals to create a video glossary of marijuana-related vocabulary. As a social scientist, language is what normalizes things, and so to help empower the deaf community to develop language around this will help normalize um, medical cannabis use. Their touring grows in dispensaries to learn more about the industry, also hoping to make it more ADA-friendly. At a recent medical marijuana conference where Littleton spoke, the need was obvious.
4: There was no interpreters offered, and there were no real-time captions offered. So basically I came to a conference and struggled to understand what was being presented.
3: We asked, and it's not clear how many deaf people actually need this vocabulary, but eventually this group hopes to petition the Sign Language Academy to accept their signs. In Denver, Jacqueline Allen, Denver 7.
0: So as you can see, everybody, there is a very big need for us to develop language for the deaf community. And we don't
1: often think about the deaf community or people that have other things that are going
0: on. And And the reason why I think about it a lot is because I have a deaf son, you know, and um, he actually um, was born deaf. He wears hearing aids he can sign, and he just recently, he went to the Learning Center for the Deaf um, and he and I learned sign language, but now he chooses not to sign, he chooses to lip read and to use his hearing aids and to speak English. But anyways, I'm going to say, ready? Ready. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Welcome. Welcome, David. Yes. I remember learning my name.
2: Yep, my name.
0: S-H-E-R-I, two R's, they told me to go like that. Is that right? (laughs) Correct, yep, (laughs) you got it right. Yes, I know (laughs) this. Yes,
2: no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
0: So thank you for coming on the show today. Um, We wanna wanna address. you're welcome. You know, I've seen you around the community, I've seen you at events, and we've had multiple opportunities to talk and to share information, you know, telling you about my son and you were telling me about your experience and how you are really delving into the cannabis community and the industry and your aspirations and how you really want to help people. So um, we want your your message to get out there as to what you see are the issues and the concerns and what needs to happen so we can have this be easily accessible to 5% of the world's population that can't hear. (laughs)
2: So where do I start? I'd like to share with you that, you know, from my experience. Growing up, my father had some health issues. He was in the military and he suffered some PTSD as a result after the war. And so after that, he was using cannabis to help him through his health issues. And his mental health and his physical health dramatically improved. And at that point, I thought, oh. well, really, it really wasn't him that got me to be involved in the cannabis community, but when I got older and when I was in college, that was when my cannabis journey started. Um, there were a lot of people that were my age that I was hanging around with that, was, that were using marijuana, and I was a student at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. So it was prevalent in the community there, and I graduated from that school.
0: When did you graduate? How long ago?
2: I graduated with a degree in visual arts and I graduated 2010. Congratulations. Thank you. So spending four years at that college I was around a lot of different people and I saw that how cannabis could affect people's mental health for the better and I also have ADHD And I'm very active and hyperactive. I can't really sit still for very long uh, or ever really relax. So one of my friends had said, well, why don't you try this? Try smoking a little weed and see how it works. And so I tried that and afterwards I fell in love with it because it really helped me out a lot. And so since my years in college, um, being introduced to using cannabis and then afterwards traveling and traveling all over the United States, I've been to 28 different countries and My journey has taken me lots of places. I did a lot of backpacking and so in I was learning About the deaf community in different countries learning regional sign language Adopting part of their culture and just seeing what it was like living in other countries and I had seen that there were a lot of deaf people in other countries that weren't able to use marijuana because of the laws that govern the different countries uh, some countries do permit it, other countries do not. So I did a little personal research on my journey and travels. So and I want to ask?
0: I hate to interrupt, but I'm going <laughs> to. Sorry. But when you were traveling, were you traveling alone? Oh, yeah. I was traveling so, alone,
2: solo backpack. So
0: in other words, you're, you're traveling oh, alone yeah. with a backpack. You're a deaf man without an interpreter in different countries. How did you do that?
2: I bought a plane ticket like anybody else would. I got off the plane and I took a cab and, you know, I would stay in hotels sometimes. But I just took it upon myself like anybody else would and uh, looked up the best places to go and to sightsee. And I would ask the locals, like, what they would recommend, where should I go, where should I not go, um, where I could buy certain things and just carry on my way. Um, Of course, you know, I did have to make some of these travel plans in advance, so it wasn't just really last minute spur of the moment. You know, I had Mm -hmm. to kind of draft out where I was going and then, you know, of course do that. And there's always a little change in plans when you're, you can't, you you have to plan for the unexpected, so things like that would happen on the road. So
1: tell us about, what are some of the challenges that deaf people face in the medical or the cannabis world?
2: Well, a lot of the members of the deaf community have difficulty getting medical certification or licensure, mm. and there's a lot of information out there that it's not really accessible or they haven't been exposed to, so there are some deaf agencies in Massachusetts that are working with some people, but they also aren't up to speed on a lot of the information that's just come out about recreational or medicinal marijuana. Yeah. So I think within the last three years we've been inundated with lots of information and that's my goal is to try to help get this information out to people in the deaf community and get people more involved. And so what I'm hearing out in the community is that they don't know how to get a license or where they can buy their medicine. And with recreational marijuana being approved in this state a couple of years ago, a lot of deaf people are reaching out to me, asking me, or calling me on the video phone, asking me questions about, you know, where can I get it? And then once I get it, what do I do with it? How do I use it? Mm, and I'm yeah. thinking, how do you not know how to use it if you've gotten it? I mean, but there's really been nobody to teach what? people.
0: And I, can I right. tell you? And I, I get so it. That's I exciting
2: mean, for me to get that. You know, they're excited they finally have their product and then they don't know how to use they it. You know, so not then how I have to, to explain to it. them on the phone or a text or an email and, you know, try to warn them about the laws, you can't smoke while you're driving, you can't smoke out in public, different uh, tips that they might not be aware of. So uh, these are the basic questions that I'm getting. And and, and MRCC, I was speaking with MRCC. Right.
0: Massachusetts Consumer, what is it, I, Massachusetts Consumer, MCC? Mass Cannabis Community?
2: No, the Mass Recreational Cannabis Community. Okay, Do okay. I have the acronym right? MCC.
0: I know it's RCC. Cuz I got MCC Toy Drive on my board.
2: <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, this agency that I was talking with, I was asking them for maybe like a little catalog or information that I might be able to disseminate to people on The laws and the rules and the regulations. So, I've gotten some information from them and been able to disseminate it to the deaf community. Because there are so many people that just aren't aware of of some of these issues and things that have come up. Yeah. And so, we have to figure out, you know, I'm working with them and for them. We have to figure out a way to share this information. Uh, Um, I've invested a lot of my time uh, providing research and some outreach to people in the community.
0: Yeah, and also, too, would be helping to create teaching tools. Have you been able to go visit dispensaries and ask them about possibly getting interpreter services available?
2: Well, as far as dispensaries go, like, the dispensaries are great. They're, they're fabulous places. I've visited several of them. and. There are some gaps in services for the deaf community. Of course, you know, when you go in there, you're usually one of the only deaf people in there, and so communication Mm -hmm. access is an issue. There's one clinic called Revolution Clinic. Oh, yes. So you're familiar with Revolution Clinic, right? You know that place? So they have a few people, hearing people that work there that sign. Oh. And so that's helpful. So that's a big plus for that company. And, but that seems to be the only place locally. I mean, I wish there were more options or more dispensaries that would have signing staff or people that could communicate in sign language or deaf individuals. Yes. Uh, that would be very beneficial, just the communication piece. Um, so some people who have taken ASL or maybe graduated with some degree of ASL, that's helpful for people in the state. Do
0: you have... And it's,
2: it's beneficial for the deaf community.
0: Right. So do you have, like, do you see, like, specific words or terminology that would be really good for 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 the deaf community to have translated? You know, how, you know, with the, we, we talked about, you know, color, and how there's color, like, this is dog, this is cat. You know what I mean? We talked about, you know, the different signs, red. So how, do you see specific signs or do you see creating a video glossary around cannabis terminology as being helpful?
2: Well, yes and no, but there, ASL has a lot of rules That's um, and there are a lot of regional differences from East Coast Sign Language and West Coast Sign Language. Of course, there are lots of similarities, but much like Boston, people in Boston have an accent, people in California have a different accent, so if we were to adopt some type of an ASL glossary or a dictionary for cannabis, it would be helpful, but we would also have to be in touch with NAD, the National Association for the Deaf. And that's an agency that would be able to work with uh, chapters all over the United States to get input. Um, for regional signs and sign language. Yeah,
0: because there's the, there is a the difference, I know. There's American Sign Language, and then there's English Sign Language, which my son says is slang, <laughs> right? So it's, a, it's the, lazy, the lazy man's way of signing. Is that right?
5: <laughs> well...
2: It's more like I mean ASL is a language all to itself. I mean a yeah. lot of people call ASL the language a lazy language because it's a little bit more truncated than using every single word in the English language, um, or home signs that people that might not be fluent in signers or family members develop home signs. Yeah, you make them up, right? Yeah,
0: yeah I make exactly. up my, We make up our own <laughs> signs all the time, <laughs> and that's
2: okay. Like at home, you, your own, in your family, your your place, you make up your own signs, but. There really needs to be a consensus of people in the deaf community all over the United States for a mutually agreed upon language, yeah. so. And I mean, ASL is similar to other foreign sign languages,
0: Yeah.
2: but formally to adopt some type of a dictionary would have to be um, really approved by the NAD, the National Association for the Deaf. Uh, that's just,
0: that's my Right. Right. So what can we do now? Yeah. What can we do? What can we do right now to help deaf patients
2: well really what we need help with is education that's that's the key how do we provide education and access to services are extremely important I mean hearing people know more about this because it's you can hear it this is exposed it's very exposed in the hearing community the deaf community is limited in you know how this information is uh, provided mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of deaf people in the community here that are involved in the cannabis community and from um, personal use up to and including the business models Uh, people that are cooks and farmers and there are people all over the state that are working in this field. I know one uh, farmer right now that is working (coughs) in Salem and there are people that are starting to dive into the field and um, mm-hmm. working in harvesting and so I think really just having the exposure and getting the knowledge of these mm-hmm. people who are working in the industry that are also deaf yep. is important for us too just having more exposure at the expos and yes. at the hemp fest the freedom rally that happens in Boston it would be really nice if we had accessible events where interpreters were present, uh, and that hasn't happened in the past. So, if we were able to have some deaf vendors that were selling their products, if they were running a company, right. that would be a nice exchange yeah. between hearing and deaf communities to work together. So, those are some of the issues that I think we need to tackle. And
0: and so, what, what, what do you want to do in the deaf community? Or what do you want to do in the cannabis community? Because I know that you have a big interest in working in the community. What is your ideal, what do you see as your ideal position? And what, how you can...
2: I mean, my goal or the,
0: my ideal job in this
2: would be to try to work on a state level and work with the laws. And the Cannabis Control Commission, I want to work with them and partner with them to try to be more inclusive and how to improve the licensure process for people that are deaf, for um, medicinal dispensaries, and as well as work with them with recreational marijuana too. Um, Trying to grow more jobs. The deaf community, 80% of the deaf community don't have jobs. They're underemployed. That means 20% of our community are actually gainfully employed. And that other 80% are on social security.
0: Wow. And so
2: that's government assistance.
0: So this can create jobs for people yes. in the deaf community, exactly. the cannabis industry, yep. Jobs. we can educate them. If we can get the language down pat, right, <laughs> learning how universal sign language for cannabis and all the terminology, we can teach people how to do it, you could become, more people could get jobs because we know, I mean, cannabis isn't going away right. anytime soon. Exactly.
2: And really, it's nice to have a deaf perspective while this is all getting off the ground. You know, there's a hearing perspective and philosophy as this field is growing, and it would be really, it'd become more rich if we were able to morph both communities and work together. So, my goal would be to partner with, work with people in the cannabis industry to make it more accessible for employment for deaf individuals, as well as dealing with it on a Licensure and uh, on a licensure level, I mean, there are a lot of people that need jobs. They're living on the streets. Why don't we employ these people, get them into a field that is up and coming, and have less reliance on government assistance? And it will help with the thriving cannabis community. Thriving cannabis.
0: Yeah. Yes, it help everyone. Win-win across the board. Yeah. So David. Rights. Oh, sorry. I <laughs> uh, I wanted. And one other thing. I wanted to ask him one other question. Too.
2: Go ahead. I mean, with the federal level and the state level, you'll end up saving more money if you were having more people gainfully employed. I mean, people will be on so wouldn't be on Social Security as much, so you'd have more people back to work. The government will be saving more money, and it would be a win-win for everybody.
0: Yeah.
2: And it would be providing more opportunities for people.
0: Right. So for the new new people that are out there that are watching, because I want to say thank you so much, I want, will you let people know how cannabis has helped you to live your best life? How is cannabis helping you to live your best life?
2: So cannabis, how is it helping me live my best life? I think I'm, you know, cannabis has helped me to be more stable. Um, I think life before cannabis, I felt a little bit trapped. I felt like things were a little bit slower. I felt, I think on cannabis, I feel, well, before cannabis, I didn't feel great. But with cannabis, I feel much greater. And I have a community that supports me. And I feel like my life has changed for the better. And it's brought me here to meet you wonderful people. So I really have, you know, I I like the cannabis community. Um, I've learned a lot. And it's really helped to change my life. And now I like the fact that I can help other people on this journey too. Yeah, Yeah.
0: David, you've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. We're really, really grateful. Um, You can, you can see, um, David. Will you be coming to the Harvest Cup this weekend?
3: Maybe. Maybe.
2: Oh, maybe I've got a lot of stuff to do and there's a lot of planning, a lot but of planning. if I have yeah, time, have then time. maybe I'll make it. So, yeah, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so
0: the Harvest Cup is a green nurse on the go. this weekend. Yes, the Harvest Cup is a big event. Um, that they, this is their second annual one. It's going to be at the Worcester DCU Center. The green nurse group will be there doing green nurse on the go. We're going to be educating. And we want people to stop by and say hello, and let us know um, if you're new to using cannabis, and ask your questions. Mm -hmm. And if you have been using cannabis, we want to know how it's helping you to live your best life. So we want you to stop by um, the Harvest Cup. We're at NP8, which is the nonprofit table number eight, there on Saturday and Sunday. Um, So before we get to my my Dale presentation, let's talk a little bit about Green Nurse. What does it mean to be a green nurse, Dale? <laughs> it's, about living it's not your easy best being life.
1: green. It's not easy. But it's all about living your best life and looking at health from a biopsychosocial spiritual aspect and bringing in all of the things that we talk about with our patients. Nutrition, lifestyle interventions, stress, stress, management, stress management, sleep,
0: exercise, exercise yeah. social. Mm-hmm. right yes. becoming socially involved you know this time of year we you know, this is a hard time for people it's hard Very hard time yes. of year and so we encourage you to get out get out reach out touch someone <laughs> reach, reach out, out and, and touch, touch someone. someone right yeah. kindness is the universal language of love and it doesn't um, it doesn't cost anything it, to smile at somebody it doesn't especially around the holidays it could mean the world to them it could mean it. absolutely So, um, and we want to, I want to put a big shout out to the Massachusetts cannabis community. They're doing a toy drive, Mm -hmm. which is good until this Friday. They're collecting toys. If you go to Green Nurse Group um, Facebook page, there's a link there where you can get in touch with them to donate. Um, And these toys are going to um, patients, families, um, families of patients in the community. And um, basically, greennurse.com is coming. Yeah still working on it. Not the suppository, but the depository. Repository. Repository. (laughs) I do that every week. So, you know why I do it every week? Because I'd like to hear her laugh. (laughs) So, it's being built. It's going to be a repository
1: of information, studies, research, articles, education,
0: basically. So, for people to go and they can... Your one-stop shop. Green Nurse Global. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Green Nurse Global for all of your information, for all of your research, for all of your questions, your concerns, having to do with health, wellness, and cannabinoid therapeutics. So coming soon. So coming soon. Yeah. So before we get to, um, I'm going to get that video ready, aren't we, for Dale? Dale's presentation. Um, If you like Green Nurse Radio, Living Your Best Life, you have to tune into our other shows on Cannabis Radio Network. Donald Barrett show, the Barrett Report. Barrett Report, Sunday night, Sun- eight o'clock. Yep. Jake Gannam, Tuesday night. And Not your average. Oh, your average. average.
1: Not your average. Not, <laughs> not your did average. I plant that seed
0: in my head. I did. I screw her up every time. average Joe grow. grow.
1: And it's a it's a great show. He's talking about how how to grow the average person grow, and
0: every week he gives you tips on how to make improvements and what yep. to do. And then Dimitri Nashat High finance, what a hilarious man, very, very smart, very knowledgeable, very personable, and he he puts on a great show. So we have, um, we've got a line of shows for you and more coming in 2019, and um, we're going to put Dale's video on, and I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. And remember, it is about living Living your your best. best life.
4: Now I would like to formally introduce uh, Dale Buckman. So Dale Sorry. is a board-certified adult gerontological primary care nurse practitioner who graduated from Boston College. She's the medical director of Green Nurse Group, a nonprofit healthcare agency providing consultative services and certification to medical cannabis patients. She co-hosts the Green Nurse Show, sponsored by Cannabis Radio Network, and speaks to healthcare providers throughout the state to educate them on cannabinoid therapeutics. I look forward to your project, Dale.
1: Thank you, Anna. And before we get started, I'd like to thank Anna and Judy because this has been a long process and sometimes difficult and painful. And everybody that worked with me in the office, the staff, it's, it really makes a difference when you have a good team. So, the culmination of this project is a patient centered approach to depression screening using PHQ 9 in an adult. Medical Marijuana Clinic. And here we have a picture of one of our focus groups that we did at the radio station, and we invited patients. This didn't happen until the fourth, uh, very late into the project, so we didn't implement some of the changes yet, but we're working on it. So comorbid pain and depression has an estimated mean prevalence of 60.8% and an economic burden between 560 and $636 billion. And just to put that into context, that outpaces cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. So it's quite significant. And left untreated, uh, depression, left untreated, results in decreased treatment efficacy, higher healthcare utilization rates, and decreased functionality. So on a local level, through causal analysis, we found we just had no protocols. We thought we were doing a great job. We had no protocols, lack of education and depression symptomology. And we didn't really have collaborations within the community because about 90% of the patients didn't want to share their health information due to stigma with their primary care provider. So it's no surprise that we had a baseline depression screening rate of zero and provider education and confidence was very low at 29%. Patient satisfaction was 61%, which isn't horribly low, but that's not what we want for our patients. So what we know is the U.S. Preventative Task Force recommends screening adults for depression, but only 3%, that 3% include depression screening. That's from the American Psychological Association and I I thought this couldn't possibly be right. And data was largely unavailable for pain clinics. And psychological interventions play an important role in pain management because pain and depression share biological pathways and neurotransmitters. So treating one without the other is very ineffective. So an early intervention improves treatment efficacy and really can help mitigate the burden of on the patient and the family. So it's important that we do this. So the framework for this quality improvement project was the Screening Brief intervention, Referral to Treatment, also called SBIRT. It's a comprehensive integrated public health approach. And there are many toolkits. We chose two. The North Carolina Community Care Depression Toolkit and the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement Depression and Primary Care Toolkit. And these were fantastic because they also included algorithms to go along with the patient health questionnaire, which is the screening tool itself, as well as uh, telephone sheets to help with providers to prompt conversations with patients. And a shared decisional aid was adapted from Option Grid with permission, And in addition to their three choices, which were watch and wait, medication, and talk therapy, we added more evidence-based lifestyle approaches like yoga, acupuncture, dietary changes, and regular exercise, because that was more in line with what our patients were looking for. So the aim of this quality improvement project was to improve adult patient-centered depression using screening using phq9 and delivery of right care to 75 percent over eight weeks and just to give a little context we're a small medical marijuana evaluation clinic located in an urban area of massachusetts our clients are predominantly caucasian adults 18 and over and due to stigma and federal regulations it reimbursements aren't allowed so it's a self-pay clinic And we have um, an osteopathic physician. He's our collaborating provider, a nurse practitioner, two registered nurses, a patient liaison, administrative support, as well as a receptionist and telephone support provided by the office that we um, exist in. And this was a rapid cycle quality improvement project that took place over eight weeks using four two-week Plan, Do, Study, Act, or PDSA cycles with small tests of change, and these were our core interventions. So the uh, team meetings, we were very um, disorganized when we began, so we started having regular meetings every Monday, and in those meetings, we introduced depression education. We have a nurse that's very good with role-playing so she was great at leading those exercises and we had guest speakers coming in so i had a nurse practitioner who specializes in psych who's a colleague from boston college come in and she talked about the importance of depression education and the conversations and also we have we service a lot of veterans and they came in and told their personal stories and this was really so important in mitigating some of the reticence that the providers had with having these conversations with patients. So it really helped a lot. A shared decisional aid was implemented with positively screened patients. And throughout this project, we started with a pilot with five patients, one provider, and moved to all patients with three providers. And we ended up, we laminated some educational sheets. We were really pushing education on patients. And we ended up, as the picture you saw on the picture with a patient focus group that was very successful at the end of the project. Now the PHQ-9, which is the patient health questionnaire screening was implemented. We first handed it to patients and then we decided to put it into all new patient forms, which made it a lot easier. And eventually we put it into our online platform as well to make it more accessible to patients. And the follow up and referral, which was our patient case management log For all positively screened patients, time was an issue, so we ended up changing it to patients screened positively over nine for depression. And then we created a provider uh, telephone question list to go along with the right care checklist, which made it a little bit easier for providers to track everything, and eventually put follow-up emails for patients that were unable to be reached by telephone. So chart audit tools were used to record data and transferred to an aggregate data collection analysis tool before being documented into run charts for analysis and identification of runs, shifts, and trends. And a five-point Likert survey was used for team confidence and um, satisfaction as well as patient-perceived interaction, how they felt did they feel like they were involved. One open-ended question was included in all of these surveys to encourage feedback from everybody to um, help with making changes. So our measures, baseline data was collected to um, gauge the accuracy of our efforts improvement efforts. Because if you don't know where you started, you don't know if it's an improvement. And also measures had to be formulated for each test of change, as well as the aim and a balancing measure. And as you can see, our balancing measure was based on team satisfaction. We didn't want that to decrease more than 10% because if the team's not happy, quality improvement is not happening. That's what I found out throughout this project. So it's very important. So quantitative data collection and analysis were recorded a minimum of every three days through evaluation of chart audits and survey results. The qualitative data was obtained through open-ended survey questions and feedback with the staff as well as with our patients. And they were really good at that. So baseline data and a minimum of 14 data points was plotted and with the exception of uh, team engagement, because our meetings were once a week, so that was plotted once a week. And my ethics disclaimer is that this doctoral project was excused from review by the Institutional Review Board at Frontier Nursing University, and no outside funding was received for this project. So here are the results. As you can see, they're quite impressive you can see the tests have changed, the measures, our baseline data, the goals and our results, and the ones that are in yellow are goals that we exceeded. So we're going to talk about these a little bit, but it's quite impressive considering we started a lot of baseline of zero. So the blue line here represents our data points, and this was the team confidence. You, you can see that we started off quite low, 29%, and we ended at 87%, but we had an average of 78%, so we didn't quite meet our 80% goal, but this was, I think that this is sustainable, because we, with work, this has, this has really changed. And um, occasionally, oh, I'll go on to the, this is the number of patients screened for depression. Again, we started at zero, and pretty quickly rose up to 100%. On occasion, we had a patient that would decline to take the PHQ-9, and coincidentally, they happened to be all healthcare providers or mental health providers that didn't want to do that. So this is where our patient uh, case management log came in. So the number, this was really, uh, in the beginning, it it was quite difficult to get this. It took us about, five or six weeks to really get it going to a point where it was manageable for the providers. As you can see, providers, it was time consuming. There was too much information to be placed here and there. And some days we ran out of forms. but what we did was take we took the shared decisional age, which had um, patient included patient education booklets. And rather than giving out if somebody chose yoga as their lifestyle intervention, we would give them a sheet for just yoga, but then we created a book that had all of the options in it. So it was much easier for providers to just hand the book out with all of the information that the patient needed. So that helped with the right care checklist. And also, we, you can see where it really went up to 100 is when we integrated the telephone questions with the right care checklist right into the provider notes. So that was really helpful. The providers were happy, and it saved a lot of time, and it kind of made it foolproof. So this was our balancing measure. You can see the team satisfaction went up. Because, again, if the team's not happy, nothing is getting done. And team satisfaction wasn't terribly low at the start, but it could have been better. And we didn't want it to decrease more than 10%. So, we exceeded the aim, which was depression screening and delivery of right care to 79 We got to 79%. Patient engagement rose to 82% and team satisfaction to 82% as well. And we had t- really strong improvements in team confidence from 29 to 78%. And the patients identified with depression, we didn't reach our goal, we fell short. Our goal was 65%. We reached 58%. And how I got to that number was literature states that 30, depressive symptomology would be in between 30 and 100% of patients. So we took the mean, which was 65%, and we ended up um, uncovering 58. So that was really good. And um, the strengths of this project, again, were dedication to quality improvement. A very strong team, as well as the clarity of the SBIRT model, and that's the framework. And also, these tools, all the tools that we use, they're available to everyone, they're free, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's what we found. So time issues, lack of team confidence, and poor leadership really challenged this project at the beginning. And with consistent with current literature, as teamwork strengthened and staff felt empowered through these educational interventions and role-playing, things got much easier. And um, evidence also supports the shared decisional aid and patient education to improve care as well as perceived levels of participation. So this project really had a significant impact on the team and our protocols. We have grown as a team, we're stronger. Our protocols, we realize the importance of these protocols and why they need to be in place. And also the patient care that we deliver is much better than it ever was. Our patients are very happy. And it shows that depression screening and right care can be done effectively. So in conclusion, the Green Nurse Group successfully increased adult depression screening and delivery of right care from zero to 79%. And screening identified 58% with depressive symptomology. That is huge. Remember, 3% are being screened in primary care. And sustainability really rests on the dedication of the team members and these consistent protocols. Early identification and treatment, improves the quality of life and reduces healthcare costs. And this remember, this patient population often feels, especially with the opioid epidemic, they're treating chronic pain differently. And there's not a whole lot that they can do once they reach their, once they reach, they get off that, they'll put them on antidepressants. and. Providers don't often have a lot of time to spend with patients. So this can make a tremendous difference in their life. And as usual, more research needs to be done within this chronic pain population. So that concludes this presentation. And now we're gonna have um, a discussion, facilitated discussion. So I wanna ask my staff because (laughs) they're the experts now. So Sherry and, Jody, so what was your biggest challenge in patient care during implementation?
0: The biggest challenge was the time factor. How could I possibly fit in one more thing with the vast amount of assessment and time that we spend with the patients already because not only are we looking at their diagnoses we're looking at all of their symptoms and we're looking at biopsychosocial spiritual mm. lifestyle how could I possibly add one more tool in so it was it was definitely I was the um pdq9 <laughs> pooper, <laughs> right the phq9 yeah phq9 See, I was not happy but how do you first. feel
1: about it now
0: I would not do without it. Yeah. I, we are going to keep the, that form in with all of our screening, with our intake, because it directs the conversation right. and it pulls things in that I would never think of right. without looking at that score. Yeah
1: so it helps to direct the patient conversation direct the
0: patient conversations helps to ask questions that you wouldn't think of asking it helps you to look at things from a different perspective yeah how you know could this depression this that they don't even think that they have right. half the time these patients when we talk to them they don't act depressed and they don't claim that they're depressed right but when you look at the score the score says something completely different. And
1: then you start directing conversation and the, it starts to unfold. Yeah. But what about the, um, what do you think is most important in sustaining these new protocols?
3: I mean I think we should definitely make sure that that we're screening each and every patient.
0: I look for it now. Like yeah. when, a, when, a, when a patient's chart you know flags for me to that there's a new patient I, that's one of the that's things the that first I thing. first thing that I right. look for because it goes along with the intake. Right perfectly. right. It's hand yeah. in hand. It's
5: hand yeah. in hand.
0: You know, because they, you, how can you possibly heal when you don't know that there's something right know, that, that's you've been living with for such a long time. Chronic pain patients right. often live with depression, it becomes a part of who they are because they don't know any yeah. better.
1: And what about is there something you think we could do more effectively to improve patient care? I mean we thought we were doing an amazing job. We found out, okay, we weren't doing so well in regards to this. But what do you think we could do better?
5: Um,
3: I, I think follow-up.
5: Mm, I think, I, I really part. think that yeah.
3: follow-up is is huge because I mean, the initial intake, you know, the talking to them, but I did now have, they have to experience it. I did it. have one patient that said that he came back
0: and did the PQ-9 again Yeah. and and saw a difference, Yeah. Um, which was, pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think they like to see it too. Well, the, I
1: think getting them involved. I mean, we in had a lot care. of positive feedback from the the follow-up calls were time consuming. And it was another thing that we had to do at the end of the day, but patients really liked the extra attention. Mm-hmm. I found in the beginning it was a little bit
0: well, you're addressing something that people feel very uncomfortable talking about. Yeah. And as nurses, especially green nurses, <laughs> we like to talk about things that people feel uncomfortable talking about, mm. because then it just de- uncovers another piece of the puzzle to help them process information, process emotion around their chronic debilitating disease and illness yeah. that they otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity. So we're just another opportunity for healing. Yeah. Using, you and know, I think
5: they like to be heard. Yeah. yeah. Are
1: there any questions that anyone has? Anybody here?
5: I'll ask a
3: question. I'm not a healthcare provider, but what strikes me in listening to you is the fact that there really is no depression screening or so little depression screening that takes place.
0: Never thought about it before.
1: Right, um, so. How do, you,
4: how do you make that happen?
0: We're gonna make sure that this gets published. <laughs> right. Everywhere, we're gonna, right? Because it is important.
1: I think it's important to he's asking about he's surprised at the lack of depression screening in primary care and how do we make spread this around so that other people are doing it and I think it's important to educate as providers we still need continual education so I think it's important that we present when I present publicly I always talk about depression screening I put that in there now because I think it's so important and I learned so much about it through doing the research for this project. Any uh, any questions? Mm-hmm. Oh. First PHQ. I thought it was a pill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, doesn't it sound like that? <laughs> I don't, what does it stand for? Patient know. Health Questionnaire. Um, so it's a. So like, oh, a PHQ9, yeah. The number
4: is the number of questions yeah. that we ask.
1: Well, <laughs> 19, 19, 19. 19. Right. does anybody else have any questions
4: I do. Hi. yeah this is dr Verzoni, and i know you touched on this um in your presentation but what did you find like what were the top problems you got your team on board after so much resistance because this happens in pretty mm-hmm. much every project right the student brings in these uh, interventions and everybody's already maxed out. So what do you think were some of the key take homes that you would advise other students facing the same challenges?
1: So in the beginning, we just didn't have a very strong team. We lost two people. Our meetings were unstructured and very long. And once we started to structure our meetings, we came up with an an agenda each week, which we've never done before. It was really important to do that because it gave people something to think about bef- as the week went on. And also having, when I invited the nurse practitioners, the psych NP, into our, to educate and talk about why this was important and what she was seeing, because this is all she works with, that really piqued everybody's interest. They started to think, wow, this could really make a difference. And everybody, we love our patients and hearing the patient's stories. And we had some unbelievable, we have some really great patients. And some of these stories talked about, so these people have chronic pain and depression and some of them PTSD and a lot of different issues and how providers or one person made a difference in their life. So that really helped also and practicing the role playing was good too because people were afraid. It wasn't just the patients that didn't want to have mental health discussions. The providers didn't either. They were uncomfortable with it. They didn't even know where to begin. So that was, I think, and, and you know, leadership. I should talk about leadership because it's really important. And leadership develops over time, but it develops a lot faster when you're trying to do quality improvement because without good leadership, (laughs) <laughs> it just doesn't mean you I'm gonna can't. You on that. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, yeah. Thank you. Nope. Any other questions?
6: Yeah, no. yeah, I'd like to say something. This is Annie Joplin. Um, I enjoyed this so much, and I think what we got out of learning how much you invested in your team and your team engagement is reflected in what we saw in the patient engagement, which was Mm. quite exciting to me that 82% of your patients were engaged, which tells us that when there's lack of screening and we identify and offer it, and your team was motivated enough to support it and to support the patients through it, then that's a dramatic effect that you've made in the lives of those patients. And I think Mm. because you're a cannabis clinic, it even gives more credibility to the way you treat your patients and the way it lines up with what it really is the standard of care or, you know, what we as nurse practitioners should do to advance the needs of people who are depressed. Mm-hmm. So good job. Sounds like thank a great you. project, and I would love to see this published.
1: Oh, Thank you, Annie. Anybody else?
5: I was just wondering, um, how are you going to be able to get this into the um,
4: hands of the doctors? Because I find that they're very reluctant to speak. Like my general practitioner, you know, they tend to shy away from this discussion in general. They don't want any part of it. So how do you plan to get this pamphlet in the hands of the doctors so they don't feel so reluctant to offer this valuable information to them?
1: Could you hear that question? She said no. her primary care provider is very reluctant to have these conversations. So, how do you get providers to have these conversations? Show
0: them this research. <laughs> I get, yeah, we could share. I
1: mean, I speak to a lot sure. of um, health care providers, and again, I add this in to my um, talks now, and a lot of it is based on uh, talking about cannabinoid therapeutics. But there's always an opportunity to add it in there. And I'll present some of this project also to healthcare providers, because I think it's that important, especially in this population.
5: Hi, Dale. This is Dr. Stonehill. Um, I just wanted a very good presentation. Wonderful. Thank you. And I do hope you publish this. I'm excited to see that. But one thing I can say is that um, having been in primary care for 27 years, There's a time issue here, too, and I think a lot of physicians and uh, just healthcare providers in general don't have, uh, think about the time that it takes to ask some of these questions and to do this. And I I see a need where if this document is presented to the patient before they get to the office or even while they're sitting in the waiting room and we Mm -hmm. have it in our hand, it seems to be a little bit easier because once we get in there, and then they have to fill that out, or we fill that out with them. There's such a time-sensitive thing there with um, other patients in the waiting room, and you know the schedule and how you have to only do 15 minutes. And so I see, like I do it in my practice, but I see that the physician and the physician assistant don't do it, and they don't mm. do it because they said they don't have time to do it. They don't have time to do it, and then go in the EMR and document their own notes. So they just kind of blow it off. So I think um, I think the time thing is a big problem. And I think if, if there's a way that we could implement something like this prior to the entering the exam room, it might alleviate some of that. Right. Very so, good, thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And you know, when we, at, at first, that's what we were doing, handing it to the patient while they were in front of me, the provider. And we added it. We ended up adding it into the patient form. So when they came into the office for the first time, the paperwork is pretty significant. So it's about probably 15 to 20 minutes to fill out those forms. And then we added it to our online form. So when patient, if patients just wanted to do it online, we gave them that option too. So it was, it was more successful that way. But yes, it can be time consuming. And we have the liberty of seeing patients for much longer, 45 minutes to an hour. So that's not happening in primary care. Any other questions, anyone? Well, sometimes Comments? Sometimes people get sick because they're depressed. Too. Right, because often know, and, that's a, and the doctors never ask you that when you go in. They'll never say, "Is there anything going on in your life?" Right, because no, most people won't tell you, but then, you know, but a lot of the things that why they're sick is because they're so depressed right know? so, so they, that, that never comes out in your conversation oh well let me just check this check that and you're out the door right you know nobody cares oh just oh we got this pill we'll just give you this pill <laughs> you know and you'll feel fine oh we got a depression pill for you okay oh we got an indigestion pill okay <laughs> so <laughs> you could know? you hear that she's talking yes, about thank yeah you. Rushing in, Maybe and rushing you're
5: sick out. To, you go in there with it's, you're sick. Yeah. Why? Why are you sick? Well, yeah,
4: because yes, there are definite comorbidities of depression and pain. I right. mean, we we've seen you know which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? There's more and more data right. showing that often the emotional component's pretty huge with pain. So. Well, fantastic. Work. Thank all you right. so much, Dale.
1: And thank you, everybody, for coming. That was and I an appreciate
4: amazing it. presentation.
1: Wow, oh, thank you.
4: Yes, and I'd like to congratulate the future Dr. Buckman, who, upon mm-hmm. completion of all didactic and clinical requirements of Frontier Nursing University's Doctor of Nursing Practice program, will have demonstrated mastery of the DNP essentials as defined by the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. Great job, Dale. Thank that
1: you, was, Anna. Thank you.
4: Thank you everyone for coming. And thank you
1: all for coming. I appreciate it.
4: Really excellent. Thank you. Oh, look at me, oh, my girl. Yay!